Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer, and we are the podcast about music and capitalism. And boy, do we got a good one for you today. Capitalism in spades. Capitalism in spades today. We're talking Universal <laughs> Music Group going public, how we got here, and what it means for the future of music, not just for artists, but as fans as well. In September... Arguably the world's largest music company went public on the Amsterdam Euronext stock market. The public listing represented 60% of Universal Music Group. And essentially in late September, UMG was the largest IPO in Europe this year. And last I checked, uh, Universal Music Group had a market cap of $46 billion. It's chill. $46 billion. Yeah, yeah. And for what it's worth, uh, reasons why it's trading on the European market is sort of complicated and not really relevant to what we're covering. But basically, it's a combo of UK leaving the EU and UMG's parent company being Vivendi, which is based in France, and already trades on Euronext, blah, blah, blah. But Yeah, this is like the stock market stuff is like extra out of our wheelhouse. So... <laughs> We don't care. It, as far as I can tell, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So we're just we're gonna, I'm gonna leave it at that. There's there's like your 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 like your little footnote. But uh, and, and you know if none of this means much to you, uh, like here's an easy translation. It means UMG is massively fucking valuable, <laughs> and in turn, music as a commodity or maybe more accurately as a diverse revenue stream is arguably more valuable than it's probably ever been, and that like banks and investors consider it a good bet that this isn't going to change anytime soon. Which might lead you to wonder how in 20 years these music companies went from decreasing profits and difficulties in pivoting to digitization of music to going on a very long profitable run that looks to have no end in sight. And of course, that probably also makes you wonder, how can music be as valuable as it's ever been in the market and yet all I read is headlines about artists struggling to make any money? And it also might make you wonder what it all means for artists and you as a fan. We'll have no fear, listener. We're going to do, <laughs> we're going to try and answer some of these questions and think on other ones today to try and make sense of all of this. So, Sam, let's start by just running down some reasons why UMG, Universal Music Group, is so valued and then try to chart a path on the question of how the fuck did we get here? And, you know, to paraphrase a uh, lyric from the Talking Heads. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> loosely paraphrased. <laughs> Very loosely paraphrased. <laughs> yeah, so how did how did we get here? Yeah, I mean, it really is crazy, right? Like, if you think... If you came up through the music industry, or, you know, reading about the music industry, engaging with the music industry over the past two decades, like... The idea that we have now, like, conclusively planned to flag whatever period of crisis that, like, I grew up reading about throughout my whole teenage years is over, right? That these companies have, like, it's almost like a coming out party for these companies, not just, like, not just, like, the major labels, like, not die away. They have fully come back. They are fully as powerful, if not more powerful than ever. And honestly, like they did this in insane thing as the entire basic structure of this industry as it had existed since like 1930, give or take, maybe 1940, completely changed. And it took them, it knocked them off their feet, these companies for like a decade. And now they're back. And this is the coming out party as these companies are worth just a, an incredible amount of money. 
so like I mean, how did we get here? It's stuff we've been talking about for the the last like two two years. Uh, yeah, streaming continues to grow. Um, as massive amounts of centralization means that these companies have tremendous leverage over not just streaming websites, you know, streaming services like Spotify, but uh, other companies like Apple, TikTok, YouTube. Um, there's this uh, there's this great interview with Lucian Grange, who's at the head of um, Universal Music Group, and they're like, "So what's your what's your relationship with the digital service providers?" And he's like, "Well, we own forty percent of the U.S. market, so I'd say it's pretty good, Jack." <laughs> like, he's just like, uh, the, "We come to terms because uh, we're like the yeah, big yeah. gorilla in the room, and their ability to leverage that means that there's a consistent stream of money." Um, if you haven't noticed, there's been this insane publishing buying spree everywhere that's like breaking the news, breaking into out of the music press into just like general business pages, arts pages all over. We've covered it a couple times. A lot of that, the attention is focused on these like new companies like hypnosis funds. Less attention is often paid to the fact that Universal Music Group also is the world's biggest publishing company. Just and so anytime that, you know, I don't know, someone drops like some insane number of million dollars for Neil Young's catalog, that also implicitly increases the valuation of this enormous like dragon's horde of IP that I imagine Lucian Grain just like rolling around on whenever he feels like it. And that I'll just like um, just like insert there. That's a name which is very important and which we'll be repeating a lot. And he is the CEO of Universal, right? Yeah, he's currently the CEO of Universal. Right, right, right. And is kind of like one of the main players to that kind of turned things around the last 10 years. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's Billboard's music executive of the decade, 2010 to 2020. I mean, the the, the really brief, without the ins and outs of his career, I mean, he's kind of just this uh, British, British guy, music biz lifer, worked in publishing for a while, has bounced around between a couple different labels, but has been at universal or the companies that fed into universal for something like 25 years and it's just this like consummate industry dude is how i would say it like as music biz as you can you can look at him i'm like he's like if you look at a picture of him he's like yeah this is what the uh, music executive is supposed to look like you're supposed to look like this like just (laughs) deal making doughy guy the deal making doughy guy standing between bono and taylor swift that's him yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. awkwardly hugging billy eilish <laughs> yeah exactly exactly um but before we dive any further into it I, I think it's probably fair to say that like you know universal should be valued highly i mean it has arguably the most comprehensive catalog of recorded music in the world we're talking like the beatles the beach boys elton john paul mccartney queen rolling stones frank sinatra u2 the list goes on and on and on Just old white men <laughs> yeah right true true and like umg reported that in 2020 over half of its revenue was from digital and physical sales of its catalog which is interesting in relation to something else we're going to discuss in this show in how music is changing along with its value but generally the fact that this is a major part of why umg is so valuable and like that I can consider that I can consider a sliver of being a good thing because it means that in the market music still has value. Yeah. I mean it's funny. Like right, like it's it's you don't 
we live in a world where the, the amount of value we give things is based like like the arbiter is the dollar sign, right? Right. Well, so, like, in the market. We, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, exactly. So like, yeah, I, I'd prefer music to be, I guess, more rather than less valuable. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I guess so. Like if it, if it had to be one of the two, I would make it be more valuable. Maybe whether or not it's great that these companies are able to be so concentrated and so powerful and have their fingers in so many pies that they're able to achieve this kind of valuation. Unclear if that's good. The moment when record labels, the biggest record labels in the world were being kind of going broke or being sold for pennies on the dollar was clearly bad for the music economy. And so I'd prefer better valuations rather than worse valuations. But like, the things, and as we'll discuss, the things that went into making this company able to achieve this kind of valuation have probably not been great for musicians. I mean, it's good for some musicians, but but um, has had really re- the entire musical yeah, ecosystem. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's like still like very much a hierarchy, and like you know, maybe you know, it sounds a little bit like maybe you know uh, Reaganomics or something like that, where you know the assumption that if like all the you know old white guys, which I just rattled off, are making money, then that means like the smaller like indie label or indie band or small like band who just signed a, a major label deal is also making money. And of course, as we've discussed in past episodes, that's not always the case. Yeah. So Universal's IPO and value also makes sense because like the you know obviously they have a massive catalog, which also means massive music publishing, as you kind of mentioned. Also investment in Spotify and also has a major hand in an array of other digital streaming platforms across the globe. So that all makes sense and covers a lot also of what we've delved into more specifically in other episodes. But the question still remains, how did we go from the music industry struggling in like the early aughts to where we are today? And I think to understand that, we need to insert a little bit of a history lesson here. It's really funny because I think that we are so in this like Facebook... Amazon, Netflix, Apple world, that this like internet 2.0 world that really kicks off in the 2000s, that it's easy to forget that like the late 90s had a dot-com boom, that a lot of pretty big like technology affiliated like processes and also like I would say like narratives get established earlier and i think that the the universal story really makes sense takes us back to this earlier moment that looks like bizarrely uh, in many ways exactly like our current moment so basically universal music is the brainchild of edgar bromfman of the bromfman family the bromfmans are this canadian american family they uh run the seagram's liquor business uh they no longer run the seagram's liquor business but they ran seagram's which is one of the world's largest uh liquor companies and basically in the late 80s early 90s um edgar bromfman who's the third generation of the family decides that he like wants to get into entertainment he'd like had some dalliances with it earlier he actually wrote some like pop songs in the 80s yeah like under like really like i don't have them in front of me but like really silly like pop names like like really silly monikers yeah no so he's like always been like inter- you know this is like a new new worlds to conquer and at this point i think that like he felt like the whiskey business is this kind of like in, in some ways it's like a classic classic post-industrial capitalism story right like whiskey and liquor is this like steady trajectory 
they have this big investment in DuPont, which is also, which is like their biggest money maker. And like, that's also just kind of like steady. And it's like printing a reasonable amount of money. And he's like, like the growth sector is the culture industry. The growth sector is uh, information technology. Like that's where we need to be. And so basically like in the quest for a position in the culture industry kind of is able to take the enormous financial resources of this liquor company and its valuation in the stock market and just jump into the music industry whole hog. So in 1995, they buy MCA from a, from a Japanese company that had bought, purchased it in 1990. Universal Studios is part of MCA, so they renamed the whole thing Universal. In 1996, they buy Interscope Records, which had been, uh, you know, it's a major up-and-coming West Coast rap. I'm not even up-and-coming, up-and-came, right? A major West Coast rap label um, that had been part of Warner Brothers. But, and this is, I think, that the 900-pound gorilla in the room in the 90s is Time Warner, right? And about to be Time Warner AOL, which is like a move into this new digital space. And basically, as it's going down, the 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 lyrics of interscope releases specifically cop killer by ice t cause a large congressional level kerfluffle at a moment at which warner and time warner are attempting to do various kinds coming under business scrutiny and so they just kind of jettison interscope and (laughs) universal's like we will certainly gladly take this off your hands and then if you think about like 1996 um, that was a good year. So uh, I think the Chronic comes out two years later, followed by not bad. M- followed by Eminem, right? And yeah, right. Then, like, and then I think Fifty Cent after it was a good purchase. Yeah. In 1998, so two years after that, they buy Polygram, which is this enormous, uh, enormous British record label. So they're getting like Elton John, cream of the British record crop. That also includes Def Jam as part of that deal. Not bad. So now they are the dominant player in hip-hop in the year 2000, which was, again, like a fabulous time to all of a sudden become the dominant player in hip-hop. And so within like five years, they go from not being in the business to being the biggest record company in the U.S. And what's really interesting about all these moves is that Bronfman, and I'm pulling from the book Fortune's Fool, which is kind of a, a business biography of, of Bromfman's rise and fall and rise and fall. It, it's, it's kind of defensive, right? And it's this funny thing where these companies are thinking exactly like there's a 100% through line. And this is one of the major takeaways I got from doing research for this episode, right? Is that there's this narrative that we've talked about before, uh, we talked about a, a little bit already, but that like, is that the record industry were dumb they were high in their own supply they didn't see the changes of the future coming they got their feet knocked out of them like knocked out from under them by napster and by downloading and that they have gradually kind of honestly the narrative kind of breaks down here they've gradually like insert unclear explanatory mechanism made it w- their way back to profitability now and that that's a narrative we've talked about before like that gives uh a, it blames consumers. Right. It kind of makes it like a state of emergency almost, which allows the record industry to do whatever it wants because it needs to survive and shifts blame away from executives who I don't think were high on their own supply, but definitely were 
some of them and maybe the industry as a whole were in many ways short-sighted and foolish in the late 90s but it it just makes them seem less situated and less like the active agents of their own destiny than they actually are and i think that reading about universal and the rise of universal in the early in in, in the 90s right is 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 really pushes back against that kind of narrative because they at some level they knew what was coming right they were like cable is happening the internet is going to happen we're get we're trying to do vertically integrated things right so like think about time warner aol that's a vision of that is amazon no, not amazon it's netflix basically right like it's it, it's it's vertically integrated culture producing access to online it's a platform and it's a brand trying to get all those together in one huge consolidated group that's going to be able to be big enough to leverage other companies and Bronfman sees that and is like oh we have to get really big because if we're not one of the two or three biggest media companies the rules of this realm are going to get written without us and then we're going to be forced to pick up the scraps afterwards but if we're big enough to write the rules then we can create a position that has like long-term power and what's crazy about that is and we'll discuss this more later but that is also Lucian Grange's philosophy. That is not a different business plan. It's just that one version tried to do this in the 90s when maybe like you could say like things weren't quite ready yet. Like the kind of uh, the potential benefits of the integration didn't quite make sense. Certainly like Time Warner AOL is famously like one of the worst business mergers in the history of business mergers the technology probably wasn't really there either yet yeah the technology is probably not really there either it's harder to sort out like the fluff from the reality also like let's be real like there's also the problem of their the the selling cd business was great in 1999 so like what are you gonna do like not double down on that right. like you keep doing that um and also becoming the 40% of the market and the biggest record company in the country and having a dominant position in hip hop in the year 1999, like actually turned out to be a great, like in the now business set of business moves. So like, of course they're like, they kept on doing that, but it's still like, it seems like to me that it's important again, just to, to put a pin in, in this is like from the get go, there was this vision that a new world was coming. A new music industry was coming a new integrated media sphere was coming and that the only way to, 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 to kind of survive and triumph in that space was to be one of the biggest ones. And anything else means you're going to get eaten up by someone else. I think it, which I think really explains like where we are today. However, 
<laughs> something happened along the way, which, as you said, they saw, and which we've covered before, which is, of course, the digitization of music. And I'm kind of really interested in just, like, putting a pin in that before I really, like, bring it up to uh, present moment and kind of, like, begin to, like, answer questions in, you know, how did Lucian Grange pivot and, like, also, like, how in doing so did, like, universal kind of shape our listening habits over the last 10 years yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so basically it sounds like grange kind of takes over like post like napster crisis and obviously we've talked about that on past episodes uh obviously with david turner and in, in other in other episodes as well and the mp3 is here the digitization of music is here and a, a lot of ceos if i understand it in the music industry are kind of like pushing back against this a little bit or are a little bit like hesitant to really pivot and kind of at least the way the narrative goes when you read about Lucian Grange is that when he takes over Universal the genius of of what he did was fully embrace this, this digitization yeah and I think that's true I mean it's hard to say I think I think everyone is spinning right really hard I mean again in this uh Fortune's Fool book um Bronfman is also claiming that he, when he leaves Universal, comes back as the head of Warner Brothers and is also like, yeah, we got to pivot to digital. So I feel like everyone wants to be the person who the entire top class of the record industry was unwilling to entertain a consideration of the potential of digital sales. But like I was the lone CEO who stood and saw the future. And it is, it is sure. difficult to quite understand um, or, or pick out who had the right idea. And I actually think the fact that multiple multiple folks say they did is probably true in that, like, this is this massive change, right? And it was going to take everyone a while to figure out how to move around it. And I think that in many ways, Grange at the head of Universal Music is in the best position to make these changes because universal music is now according to kind of its original specs the biggest player in the game at a moment when even though the entire game and the music industry is shrinking dramatically being the biggest player gives you leverage and i think he sees that and then famously he doubles down on it so shortly after becoming the head of universal in 2011 they buy emi records which was another one of the major labels had been purchased by a private equity from british major label purchased by private equity which went into default citigroup owned it they bought it technically from citigroup who had like no interest in running a liquor label i mean it's a it was a large scale you know there was a lot of um people concerned about (laughs) rightly so regulators concerned about the potential impact of this deal Grange, I mean, this is like biz, inside weeds business things that I don't particularly care about. It seems like he did a, a really good play of like spinning off parts of it and keeping the big chunks of it as, as a way to keep regulators happy. But basically, he doubles down on size, right? He doubles down on size and then he starts being able to make deals with streaming companies. And 
that's kind of the model right there. I mean, it's very simple to say, and it almost like it's so simple that like you almost want to be looking for something more deep or more more complex. But basically, it's IP. It's always been IP. If you have a huge catalog, you're able to sign good deals, and then with with the new generation of media companies that are are using music, so that's Spotify, that's YouTube. And Universal's the biggest, so it's able to lead the way in, in making these deals. Yeah, I mean, I kind of want to go back before we move forward um, shortly. Uh, I want kind of want to go back real quick just and, like, put a pin in this kind of moment, though, where, it, you know, it is really interesting if we, like, think about the rise of the MP3 and the digitization of music and everything, because something that you and I talked about, I think, yesterday was, like, you know, when you have these sort of, like, inflection points in history, there's always this sort of uh, utopian possibility, in a sense, and, you know, if you think about, I don't know, like democratization of music industry or whatever and how it was completely like rattling and up- upending the, like the major labels and like, you know, it really is this move to remain big and to have a seat at the table in determining what happens with this digitization of music. Yeah. And like, it's really like that decision to like I don't know I guess like not be passive but like we're gonna dictate the terms of how this fucking goes down basically and I think that is really kind of a way or like at least have a say in how it goes down and I think it's really like that moment where the door to this sort of maybe more democratized utopian vision maybe it kind of closes and you get like you know where we are today with these like massive fucking labels but it is interesting to think about like what we also lost in that no, I mean, and it's complicated, right? I think that, like, what struck me was the kind of co- relative calm demonstrated by some of these execs and the kind of long-term thinking. Now, I could be... Like, there are clear moments where, like, a business is just like, don't worry, we got this. And they don't, right? Like... Kodak is a famous example, right? Kodak didn't deal with the rise of digital film and or digital digital photos. And it still still exists as a company, but like it is not what it was at all. So there is a question to be like, why didn't that happen with the record industry? What's different about the record industry that allows it allowed it to be to be a survivor in the way it was. I mean, one thing I would I would say is that if Kodak owned all of the pictures taken on previous Kodaks, that might have helped it stay relevant. And <laughs> yeah. so, like, the IP is, like, you know, people are still listening to the Beatles. People are still listening to Rolling Stones. People are still listening to Elton John. People are still listening to Fleetwood Mac. And so, like, you can say, like, the record industry is not what it once was, but, like, it still owns, it's still sitting on some extremely valuable material in a way that maybe other industries or certain industries that are like non-culture industries, industries that are more focused on producing a specific good rather than the kind of broader set of social meanings that accrete around music that we've discussed. But like, as to your point, I I think it's a really good one, Saxon, because yeah, my sense of, of, of doing this research is that these execs were like, this is going to be a rough half decade, but we can pivot and make this work because in the long term, what we have is incredibly powerful and still really valuable. And it's sort of chilling in this like, 
like the scrappy upstarts thought they had it and they're the the record execs are like we'll get through this one way or another we're big companies we have a lot of connections and we'll make this work and it worked incredibly well for them and and i I do think just thinking about this utopian possibility idea right um and thinking about like the ways in which or trying to unpick why it worked out so well for them right beyond just pure size because i do i think and and how it shaped things it's interesting to read i I did some reading back uh, uh, about um like press reports from 2011 to see like what folks thought was going on with this emi purchase and one thing they talk a, a lot about is what we see in retrospect as these kind of funny dead ends right they're like major stars like Wilco and Radiohead have chosen to go it alone like proving that they no longer need major labels and I actually think that's like you know we're talking about like Radiohead's decision to 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 release in rainbows as like a pay what you will which actually ended up making them a tremendous amount of money (laughs) I don't get it but like you know (laughs) y'all do you maybe a mini episode for later (laughs) or whatever but yeah basically for people who don't know like Radiohead was already a massive band on, on the heels of basically like a three out al- four album run i would say and decided to <laughs> just decided to i think their contract was up with their label and they decided to release their own album i think on their own label and it was basically downloadable online uh as a pay what you want and i think there was also they would i think this was yeah they did sell they did also sell it with like extra stuff. yeah yeah you did sell like that a physical a physical cd for extra stuff and yeah it ended up making like a ton of money and it was a huge like news story because it was like as you said you know oh it proves that if you're like maybe you don't need the major label no and i think this is a discourse that really existed at the time and, and yeah one of the things that's sobering to think through and one of the things i think that's been very impressive about if we think about what has happened in the last 10 years as these companies have enacted this like slow burn plan to regain relevancy regain the upper hand regain profitability and now be more profitable than ever basically um how that affected our music listening how that affected music as a commodity and like one of the things i think that was like a key victory as far as i can tell was the label's convincing stars that they were that they still had something to offer right that in retrospect radiohead wanting to go it alone was like a move that they could do but that a generation of stars for the most part didn't really follow them instead a generation of stars formed a variety of like business dealings with major labels and i think that some of that's like my sense is that the stars got cut in more, whether that's with a sub label that allows them to sign new talent or whether that's with better contracts or like the, 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 the higher levels of percentages you get with 360 deals that a lot of these major artists are on. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. And, you know, there's kind of almost like a cognitive dissonance when you when you read or, you know, Google Lucian Grange, because you are always going to see him, as we kind of mentioned earlier arm in arm with these like major stars and then there was like this profile in the financial times that wrote this like glowing review like which had all these glowing quotes from major artists like the weekend and taylor swift and then you know you're sitting here and being like wait a minute all 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 i read about otherwise though is about how like most artists can't make a living now and it's like there's something in his ability to kind of like thread that thread that needle you know and like please the major stars and maybe like even get a greater cut like you said for the benefit of like universal yeah well i mean i think that one of the things about 
the digital landscape in general is that as listening has continued to globalize you there's a lot there's there's way more regulatory regimes that you have to operate in right like you're taylor swift you're radiohead you want to be streaming in italy and japan and india and australia and russia and brazil and the u.s and running trying to run that yourself and be a musician which is its own job is crazy and the major labels are able to do that and and this goes back to like the overall power of ip consolidation of culture industry consolidation which is i think interesting and maybe like a different kind of power i mean not to spin out too far right but we think a lot about like the kinds of central network centralization as like the dominant feature of this like monopolistic moment in capitalism that we currently live in right with like facebook owning all these different platforms but i i would also wonder if like the culture industries can sometimes function kind of differently so so like what they have is like a different kind of monopolization the monopolization of intellectual property that everyone wants and that gives them that leverage which then allows them because they're just constantly getting bigger allows them to make good deals with telecoms in brazil or telecoms in nigeria or telecoms in south africa just like the extraordinary complexity of these business environments but like you want to collect money from all of them i mean there's this like um back back thinking about like like in times when the music industry was maybe running uh, a little bit fatter, you know, and didn't have to worry about these, is that um, I was talking to someone once about um, the popularity of like Michael Jackson in the continent of Africa. And it was like, how many, <laughs> um, it was actually, it was, I think it was like, uh, I think it was Chris Kirkley of Sahel Sounds. It, it might've been Dire Straits. So like, don't, I, I can't remember. But anyway, these, these Western artists that are, you know, incredibly popular in 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 the african continent it's like how many of them were official like copies and it's like like probably none like very very few like illegal copies of michael jackson records got (laughs) purchased in like egypt in the 80s but like there were a lot but now if it's spotify if it's streaming in some ways like the anti-piracy mechanisms that brought all this money back online um, or not not online, but like back into the coffers of the record industry that they use to recapture that that money in the U.S. Also means that if it's being streamed in Egypt, probably Justin Bieber is getting paid there now, and a major label. One hundred percent. I mean, actually, like one you know one hundred percent. Like one of the things that was in the 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 UMG prospectus uh, leading up to the IPO was about Universal's relationship with like localized digital music platforms and I was like what does that mean but like when I read through it it was basically meant that like you know whatever the Spotify is in Nigeria like Universal already has a relationship with them you know and like even kind of yeah. like you know and, and 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 like you know it's in the prospectus before they go IPO and they name off I don't have it in front of me but they have like they name off like all the countries and like some of the names of these companies that like I've never even heard of and also in relation to like what you're also referencing which is like kind of the multiple touch points in which like an artist can go ahead and like an artist and of course UMG make money from their music you know they have like a huge list in that prospectus that's like has like you know subjects like fitness voice obviously social media and gaming live streaming like all these different like you know brands all these different like you know i guess uh 
yeah, what I would say, like touch points in which like our revenue streams, right? And like, you know, if you're going it alone as Radiohead or Taylor Swift, like you don't, not only, I mean, let alone you probably don't have the time or the effort or even want to build the team to go ahead you and do that. You can't build the time but and also effort. Just this, like, you can't build the time and effort to do that if you're Taylor Swift. And so all of a sudden, these major labels are looking a lot more valuable to you. Yeah, and it's an interesting and thing because it kind of beca- kind of relates back to like sort of this like the not only the, the digitization of music but also just like how rapidly like technology has advanced since you know I'd say starting a little bit before Grange took over UMG, but also you know just like you know how much the world's changed as well like when it comes to those, those technologies. You know, I I like to always like reference it like the first iPhone came out in two thousand eight when like Obama got elected, and I feel like that just blows my fucking mind if we consider like where we're at now. So I think that kind of like maybe speaks to just also not only like what what you're saying in that it almost makes more sense for a major star. I mean, it does make more sense for like a major star or even like a, an inspiring star to sign with like a major. But it also means that in many ways, like Universal is like shaping this music industry and like how we listen to music and the culture of it and like you know, basically their vision is the one that's become that's becoming essentially a reality. And I mean, I also think that, and if we think about like contingent and non-contingent factors, right. And this might get a little bit more speculative, but given this level of centralization, it's easy to talk about like systems and broad dynamics, but also there's like a couple of people, mostly dudes who are running these incredibly influential culture industry systems, right? So I was thinking about, like, in addition to, like, Grange or, like, the major label system's ability to convince stars that it is still worthwhile to stay with a major label. Like, that stars going on not their do own Radiohead thing. discussion is, 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 yeah, not do the Radiohead thing. Stars going on their own discussion is no longer part of the discourse, Right. I also just think back about pop music in the last 10 years and think about how, and and maybe you disagree with me about the Saxon, but think that it's a relatively stable set of stars that have been at the top of the heap for a while, right? Like, Drake has a, a longer run as the most dominant figure in hip-hop than probably anyone had before him. Beyonce has been a star since literally I can remember pop music starting. Same thing with Justin Timberlake. Same thing kind of with Britney Spears. She's not really a pop star in the same way anymore, but like she's still at the top of the news. Like the, no, it, the, yeah, the, yeah, we've re- yeah in, a, in a sense, we've kind of reached a point that was like maybe reflective of like, I guess maybe, I don't know, 80s, 90s, where you kind of had like the Madonna, Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen. Like we're kind of at that point. And I think that like to take it a step further, ask a question, how much of that staying power of those stars is the result of the power in which like umg and warner and sony have and how much of a hand they have in the way that we access music so you know there's this (laughs) really really crazy thing that i read basically the intellectual property office in the uk which is like some official ip uh government organization came out and basically said that the top 1% of artists account for 80% of all streams and that that t- the top 10% of artists highest like streamed artists account for 98% of all listening by fans i mean 
talk about monoculture. I go down one road, right? And I read in the prospectus of UMG before they go IPO, the company represents four out of the top five artists of the year on Spotify and nine out of the top 10 highest grossing recording artists, according to International Federation of the Phonographic Industry. And so obviously with the IPO, UMG was in a good position to take advantage of that revenue growth opportunities for like licensing agreements and streaming. Cause like all the artists are basically fucking UMG artists, right? All the top, right. top play, right? And so you, you, then you think about, as we've covered on the show before, Spotify lives and dies with licensing agreements with these top three labels yeah and without them like spotify doesn't basically doesn't fucking exist or it's a bunch of fucking indie artists or something you know which i'd be fine with but i mean it doesn't exist right and so you can go down the paranoid route which is like well if they got if umg and the sony are like so important to spotify then like clearly like it makes sense that like they would have a hand in the algorithms or the playlist and like try to push those artists and i'm sure that's we know and we know that's true about the playlist and 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 that kind of goes back to my earlier point, which is just like about the contingency of the development of music over this past 10 years. I'm not sure that it is necessarily true that what we get because of this digital revolution is a incredibly star focused or this kind of centralized star focused machinery. Like maybe it is that could be true, but I'm not convinced that that's the only outcome but I wonder if, let's say, the specific, like, individual agency of someone who has spent their life dealing with, like, an old-school superstar system who really focuses on, like, prides themselves as an old-school record guy, is really focused on creating and continuing relationships with superstars, isn't able to, like mold the record industry to kind of fit that that some of the 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 continuities that we're seeing between let's say the record industry in the 80s late 80s when it's like a set of superstars and the record industry now when it's a set of superstars that are making the vast majority of the money whether that's not to a certain extent about the ability of a handful of individuals to shape the music industry to make it look like what they want and the reason i'm thinking about that that this there's not a necessary connection between technology and it's kind of a funny example so i'm thinking about like ringtone rap right there's this new technology it was making the music industry a lot of money and it was a lot of like it was like the shake 4l to shake your laffy taffy it was like a bunch of like one hit wonders which we also know the music industry can do really well there's moments when the music industry wants to sell you a whole bunch of one hit wonders you've never heard of before and that's and that's not now exactly and sure like a long term investment from fans especially in like more social space blah 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 blah, blah direct to consumer blah, blah 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 but like also you're like okay there's like three people running this industry and maybe they like superstars and like what kind of what does it mean to have people even being able to think that right I don't know to what extent that's true but like there's no way that Lucian Grange's personal tastes have not shaped the influence, the, the, the evolution of the record industry over the past 10 years just by dint of the amount of leverage and power he's had over it. And that is, I don't know, that's crazy to think about that kind of like personal control. Shaping. Or at least like the people around him, at least, yeah. you know, who yeah, are yeah, like yeah. whisper, you know, because, you know, I'm sure all these CEOs have like, you know, uh, CEO whispers, we'll call them. But I just want to go back to something you just said in that, like, you don't know if it has to be the outcome. And I think 
that is a completely logical point because as we've also discussed, like we have more access or easier access to more music for less money than ever in history. And so the fact that the top 10 streaming artists make up 98% of all streams is sort of baffling and makes you scratch your head. But, you know, once again, the question is, is it all games? Do the algorithms really push this? You know, and like, or like, and is it an issue of monoculture? Because like, was the thing, were things different in the 80s and 90s? Or has like the underground indie world always been that 2%? You know, and I don't have an answer for that. But I do think that the point that you made is really important in the sense that like, to assume though that these majors and that people like Lucian Grange don't have a hand in our listening habits is is also foolish. There's there's some there's definitely something there, which which means which means that you know we can go ahead and start thinking about like what future Grange and his investors envision for music, and obviously by proxy us the fans and listeners. Yeah, and I and I mean I think that this is like a moment. When like it's useful to, to like to zoom out a little bit and and again think about like in music history historic terms <laughs> it's a funny way to say it but in music history historic terms what the broader import of this IPO and the extraordinary valuations that are being given not just Universal but to Warner as well to um to Sony what this means right because. I mean, I, I think it's like, it, it's not crazy to say like from like literally at the highest possible level, like there's since the beginning of the modern popular music industry, there's like one structure that's based around sheet music it exists from like 1893 to like 1925, give or take. That's Mach 1, right? And Mach 2 is like this industrial, like the selling of goods that's like 19... 25 1930 through the early 2000s and these are like their their record companies right they sell records and if you go back to like our i think like second or third episode uh there's this amazing one of those like perfectly ideological moments when in like 2008 2010 they all changed their names to music companies they're not record labels they're music companies and like this marks a fundamental shift in what these companies do and and how they imagine themselves. And now I think like a stamp of approval from the outside world, the broader markets of like what music is as a commodity. And, and we've talked a lot about before um, in previous episodes about like the way in which music is like a, a weird, complex, imperfect commodity, that there's all of this social value that circulates around the performance and consumption of music and that the record industry is basically for its whole history has been trying to siphon off or capture part of that value so that it can make money produces this broader value that you know spills over into cars spills over into drugs spills over in all kinds of different markets peloton Um, uh, at home fitness uh bike (laughs) and that's the thing right I think the peloton which is you know what uh one of the like potential growth markets for music Right. right is that I think that having now, I mean, with the exception of like the vinyl resurgence, pretty much given up on selling goods, there's a new focus on the fact that music is a good that's 
valued socially and that its value is fundamentally produced by social interactions, that it doesn't have any innate value, that its value is based on the relationship that people have to it, and that there's a whole host of spaces that people can engage with music, and that the new record industry's MO is tracking down, is using its leverage to track down as many of those spaces as it possibly can and squeezing every single drop of profit it can out of what them. are some recent examples of that just for like you know to illustrate your point. i mean you know there's there's like uh tiktok and like tiktok's advert using uh like dance trends to advertise them businesses using tiktok dance trends to advertise them and like that as a potential new like b2b market there's peloton there's like roblox deals there's just like a, like, a, like, a, like a simula- simulator like online video games basically yeah they're, they're, they're there's like gaming, being sued by the majors and now have like cut like a licensing deal there's twitch which we've talked about before right. i mean there's a whole host of these and there's facebook there's social media but but all of this is i think that is that that's a very different model for a music industry and it's one that's much more engaged in the minutia of people's lives and frankly engaged in the minutia of how music functions and your habits and how you listen to music and what music you listen to it's i don't quite know what to think about that but it's an enormous just think about like um all the examples that we know of in, in the history of recorded music of post sale reimaginations of musical forms right whether that's early Motown singles somehow finding them their way to like Wigan Casino and kicking off like British dance music with Northern Soul, whether that's like, um, you know, dance, you know, garage music doing the same thing, whether that's like 45s getting it, you know, getting to Jamaica or that's recutting in dub culture, all of these things that happen to music post sale and having given the kind of datification of all things in digital spaces, having like, universal there the whole time being like oh yeah you're playing this song now cool how what's what, our what, what kind of value yeah what's, yeah, our what's the value you want to make it yeah, what's our, what's our value how are you your ass yeah, yeah how's yeah. this how's this gonna work yeah. these all-nighters and we can casino how are you know you're playing a lot of music uh a lot right. of northern soul right um can we advertise things based on that and and so i don't know like what that future looks like exactly but it's one in which i mean we were talking before saxon um about like kind of like both the, the the kind of reality of like surveillance capitalism and collecting data from all kinds of interactions and also the kind of ideologies of that, right? Like whether or not their companies are able to effectively do, you know, shape people's preferences the ways they think they do, like even trying to, because they think they can, they're big companies and they can, they can make a lot of noise and, and waves in the world. But there is, you know, frankly it's a little orwellian right of like these record companies constantly being at the side of the music as it travels through the world that they're not cut off from the continued existence of the music the way they were when what you did was press discs and then sell them and they went out into the world and then like who knows what who cares like we got our money but like extracting yeah, yeah. money from every point and and it just means that the music industry is way more integrated into every phase of musical life in a way that i don't know feels just fundamentally different to me and like don't don't you know don't doubt it i mean like in you know 
Grange came out and said right before the IPO that even with its like, and he was talking about streaming and the digital music boom. He said, even with its strong growth in recent years, streaming is still in the early stages of global penetration, you know? And it's like, this is, this is like, he's just getting started. <laughs> and, and, and I think that, you know, you were talking about the surveillance, uh, you know, capitalism thing. I think that, you know, it makes me think about these moments in history in which sometimes we don't know how to interpret or process because we've like basically never seen anything like that before. And so what we do is that we process it through things that we understand. Mm -hmm. And I almost kind of feel like like this might be one of those points where, you know, that might be kind of something that you could apply to this situation where this might be like a watershed moment in which like, just as you said, like the majors are there at every quote unquote touch point in which like music is being played and streamed. And like that creates at least it seems like it a whole new culture and a whole new world and is shaping how we listen to music and how music is made and the industry itself. So I think, I think so, so maybe to conclude, like, you know, something that we talked about yesterday, Sam, and that, that I'm, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but I think is really interesting is that obviously we pay attention on money for nothing to these things. And we talk about them, we bring you the information and all that. But maybe we go a little light on like what it all means and like what to do. And but because it can feel and I expressed this to you yesterday, this is more of a personal point, is that I can read all this and be like, fuck, this fucking sucks. Or like, I don't know, this is sketchy or whatever. But then I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to do, you know, but you made some good points about like, you know, and I know this is also always the fallback. But I think that like having a sort of knowledge about this can be actually really beneficial. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's exactly right. And. and like to end on like a, a slightly less of a dark note. I mean, it, it sounds really trite, right? To say to, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. But I do think that when we don't know what kind of new spaces and new realms of social possibility are going to continue opening up both by themselves and frankly in conjunction with a record industry that is trying to make everything uh, certainly like the engagement with its intellectual property as frictionless as possible, right? And just thinking, you know, back to some of the very beginning of what we said in this episode of the ways in which this is a moment of not just the industry coming back, but of the industry sort of revealing itself as never having left, right? Like they, Universal had a game plan from 1995 to 2022, and it's been the same game plan, which is get big, stay big, get a seat at the table, shape the landscape, period. That's its business, you know, and maybe like find some Billie Eilish's along the way, sure. And that there's going to be these moments, like there were in the early 2000s with the kind of boom of downloads, there's going to be these moments of like utopian possibility and freedom and like the sky's the limit and just, and, and, and there's some spaces that we talk about sometimes there's kind of that, that I would call like that cluster of like three letter hype words, <laughs> you know, like web 3.0 NFT, blah, blah. Right. But, and there is real energy around spaces like NFTs and, and, and web three and um, you know, the very spaces uh, where people are trying to think through what a, a Less hierarchical, or whatever. More, <laughs> less hierarchical, more artist-centric, more direct relationship 
between artists and fans world could look like and maybe like what a fair version of that world could look like and like that's really exciting and really good but also it's important to almost like um <laughs> there's this uh there's this amazing flyer i once saw in spumoni gardens uh which is this deep brooklyn pizza place that just said bully proof your child <laughs> and it stuck with me for years but it's like bully proof your future Know that Lucian Grange, know that Universal Music, know that the major labels are out there and that they are planning, you know, think about capital, right? Capital has the advantage of time, capital has the advantage of space, and they are going to be planning. And so as you're thinking about the utopian possibilities and our kind of ironic knowledge that they're never going to come true, also think about like, so when you're at the high tide and the tide is going to roll back, how do you how do you lock in some wins? How do you lock in a better version of the world than the one that came before? And with because if you don't, what you get is nothing. Yeah, no, I mean that's great. That's a great point and like you mentioned surveillance capitalism earlier and like, you know, one of the things and I keep referencing it, but one of the things uh, in the prospectus, the the UMG prospectus before they went IPO was talking about the data and and and, and you know the analytics and there's a, we're at a point now where like there's so much data that companies are not trying to just predict what you want to sell they want to actively actually shape what you want so they are more sure fired in what they present to you that you will actually buy it now maybe that's a little. I don't know. <laughs> you know, maybe that's a little like paranoia, a little bit Orwellian. I mean, it's also just advertising, but, like same as it ever was. Yeah, but I mean, but now with like the data, like you know, it's easier to predict like that stuff supposedly. But what the point being is that like exactly what you're saying is that like listen, like the Grange and the UMGs are out there, and they want to be able to like dictate like what they sell you, and know that you're going to listen to it and stream it and like it, and like you know whatever they go through algorithms, playlists, Spotify, whatever. We've done this before. We've talked about this stuff, you know. But exactly what you're saying is that like knowing that. Maybe you can get some wins when the tides back out. Yeah. I mean, it's also just like whatever new, you know, the internet was downloading was briefly the Wild West and the labels found a way. And this is, again, this IPO is the ratification of that. The major labels found a way to turn this new system to their advantage. And I'm betting that they are as powerful and canny operators with a lot of contacts and a lot of leverage going to turn almost any new system to their advantage. And the question is, what's the balance? And like 80-20 is different than 60-40. And like, maybe that's like a depressing realist take, but like, let's get 40%, y'all. Yeah, yeah. We'll tie a bow on this episode there. But before we run the credits and the music, Sam has an announcement. So first off, as always, rate and review us on iTunes. If you've got a question, a comment, a like what was that text, uh, shoot us an email at moneyfornothingpodcast at gmail.com. There's four, the number four. <laughs> Sometimes we are slow to respond, but we promise that we will. But also exciting announcement, we're going to do our very first mailbag episode. So, dear listener, if you have any kind of question burning or otherwise about frankly anything but like anything money for nothing related shoot us an email hit us up on twitter and we're gonna be doing this call for about i guess two more episodes um trying to do this by the end of the year so hit us up yeah hit us up what do you want to know we'll see you all in a few weeks bye